morning, church. That felt like particularly sweet worship this morning. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 21 today as we continue our study. Book of Galatians, and John gave us a couple updates. I just want to remind you of one more thing, uh, which is that twice a year we give our services over completely to just celebrating God's work, His saving, redeeming work by baptism. Uh, so we represented in baptism, and so we have our next baptism service coming up February 26th. So just wanted to make you aware of that. We're going to treat the day. We're going to have two services, our normal time, but we're really treating it as one long service with an intermission in the middle. So I'll just invite you to consider maybe. Uh, if you can, come, come for the whole morning because uh, we're just going to hear testimonies. We're going to sing songs throughout. Uh, those two services will actually be different because you hear different testimonies and different songs, different music. So we're just going to try and treat it as one big, long uh, morning celebration of God's saving work in baptism. Now, that said, I want to give you a heads up. If you are in Christ, you know, I often will ask you to, to prayerfully consider something. Hey, pray about this and, you know, see if the Lord's leading you to it. I don't even need to say that this morning because if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, he's calling you. It's not a maybe, it's a definitely. Uh, and so if you have not been baptized and you're in Christ Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, I, I want to invite you uh, to obey that command that he's given to us to declare the saving work he's done in your life by being baptized and sharing what he has done to save you from sin and raise you to new life and reconcile you to the Father through baptism. So if you are not in Jesus, and we know that every week, a lot of us know Jesus, and some of us are exploring, and so we know you're here, and my trust every week is that God is continuing to draw you closer to himself, and this might be the week that you finally yield and say, you know what, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm going to yield my life to him, and if that's the case, I'll invite you. These baptism waters are for you especially, uh, because what a great thing to come into saving faith and then to immediately declare that through baptism. So the 1926th is the services. The 19th is going to be, we're going to do a baptism class. We'll talk about what it is, why we do it, why we practice it. We'll answer any questions you've got. So you can sign up for that on the website. Talk to folks in the lobby. They'll get you hooked up and connected. Uh, or you can call the church during the week. And so we'd love to see you there on the 19th. Uh, it's at 1215 or 1230, right after the second service. We'll meet. Uh, we'll have a little light lunch, and we'll, we'll have some time to talk about and think about reflect on baptism. All right. Uh, I usually, I'm going to pray for us here in a moment, and I usually give a heads up, and I forgot to do it this week, so I need your grace. Um, we are going to go through this list of the works of the flesh, which is where the text takes us. You know, we always just follow the flow of the text where it goes. And so in these verses, the first three in that list are uh, about physical intimacy, and so I just want to say, if you're a parent, maybe of a young child, and you recognize, hey, maybe I'm not ready to, I promise I will be completely appropriate, uh, but if you know, hey, we're not ready for that right now as a family, it's not where we are, um, I just, I should have given you an earlier heads up, but I'm giving it to you now. So as I pray, if you're in the middle of a row, you need to elbow your way out of there, everyone will understand, no problem. And our children's ministry would welcome, receive your kids, and love to speak the gospel to them today. Love them well through that. So I just want to make a little space for that here, and we totally get it, we understand. But let me pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word. And if you need to slip out while I pray, please do, all right? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for the sweet worship we've had this morning, which has prepared our hearts. And I'm just struck that we just sang, uh, that you have broken every chain from our lives and so I pray that as we come to this text, which is really a list of things that often are chains on us, that you would break them. I pray in your special tenderness and kindness today, 
for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with these things, that you would set them free in a new way. That you would, in the power of the Spirit, bring freedom. Only you can do that. And so we ask you now, take your word and bring it forth so that that freedom might prevail. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21. We're just going to look at these three verses. It's a list where Paul lists the works of the flesh. And in a moment, we, the big question we need to ask is, well, why, before coming to the fruit of the Spirit, which is what we'll focus on next week, uh, you know, this list of these beautiful, wonderful things that come out of our lives as a result of the Spirit's presence there, first, he's going to give us this list of the works of the flesh. And it's a longer list, actually, than the fruit of the Spirit. And it makes sense to ask, well, why would, why would he do this? Having just talked about walking by the Spirit, and that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh if we walk by the Spirit. And unpacking that for us, why wouldn't he then just immediately go into the list of the fruits of the Spirit? I mean, that would make a lot of sense. Just say, let me list the fruit that will come as you walk by the Spirit. That flow might make sense, but he's going to pause here. And every word, every, every letter of God's word is intentional. Do we know this? And so as he comes to verse 19 through 21, he chooses to give us this list of the works of the flesh before he goes to the fruit of the Spirit. So we should ask ourselves, well, why? Why would he choose to, to do that? And I think there's two reasons why. I'm gonna give those to you, but first I wanna remind us that throughout this book, Paul has just been taking a sledgehammer to legalism, to this idea, I mean, he's just been battering it up one side and down the other, that we could ever earn our merit with God, be saved by the things that we do. That he doesn't look at our works and say, yes, that, those have saving merit. Yeah, absolutely. He's just been taking a sledgehammer to that. Would we agree as we've been through Galatians? Yeah, absolutely. And so as we get to lists of don't do's, which is what this is, I want to make sure that we don't slip right back into that mindset of I won't do this stuff and therefore God will love me. Because that's not the point. The point is not, don't do these things and God will love you. The point is God has loved you unreservedly and freely in Christ. So now, walk in that love and don't do these things. The difference is massive. Do we see the difference? And I, the reason I always have to highlight is because, look, we've been talking about legalism and license. And license is usually pretty obvious to people who are struggling with it. Like if, you're, if your predisposition is you kind of move towards license and you recognize, man, I, I tend to kind of follow these desires that I know aren't from the Lord and I need to stop and it's a struggle and it's a challenge. If you're predisposed in that direction, you probably, it's, I don't find too many people in that camp who have a hard time seeing it. They usually see it. But can I tell you that when I talk to my brothers and sisters who are kind of caught up in legalism, they don't see it quite often. Legalism hides itself. It's harder to see because it feels like righteousness. It feels like goodness. It feels like I'm following the rules and I, and, and it is subtle, but it's there. So I just wanna make sure we don't return to a, I will get God's approval by doing a list of things to get him to love me. That's what Paul's been taking a hammer to throughout. Everybody with me, is that fair? All right, so then we come to it. Now let's ask, why does Paul then give us this list? And I think there's two reasons. And the first is found in verse 16, and the second is in verse 21, but I'm gonna tell them to you in reverse order, okay? So let's read the text now. Let's see what he says and be prepared just to be sobered by this. So in verse 19, he says, now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, he includes that in things like these because he's saying this is not like a sum total list of everything that might be a struggle. I warn you, now hear this, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 21, we hear one of the reasons why Paul is giving this list. Now, he's saying those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul has already told us no one inherits the kingdom of God by the things that they do, by their works. So we know that he's not reversing course here and saying you have to do or not do these things, and that's what's going to determine whether or not you inherit the kingdom. What he's saying is those who are in Christ are not given over, they're not mastered by these sins because they're mastered by the Spirit. And he's saying, if you are mastered by these sins, controlled by them, if you're not fighting against them, struggling with them, wrestling against them, you should not have a misplaced faith that you are actually in Christ. That's the warning. Remember, in Galatians 4, he knows he's writing to people who claim Christ and he is confident that they are in Christ at least broadly as a church. Because in chapter four, he's already said, you know God and you are known by God. He's already said that to the Galatians. He writes to them as those who are in Christ. And yet he still sees fit to give this warning. And so it falls upon those who preach the word in this day to still give that warning to the church. Because it is possible that some of you are here claiming Christ, yet given over to patterns of sin in your life and not fighting against them and not wrestling. I'm not saying not stumbling and at points stubbing the toe and falling, but, but there is no turning away from. There is no wrestling with. There's no fighting. And we don't want to give you a misplaced confidence that you're in Christ if you are not. And so Paul brings, for one of the reasons that he gives this list, is so that the people of Galatia and we today would be warned to not fool ourselves into thinking we are in Christ if in fact we are not. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have great confidence and security in the salvation that Christ has worked. But everyone who's in Christ recognizes the need to persevere in faith and to see their life produce good works as a result of the faith that has been placed in them and the regenerating work of the Spirit. Now, I, I always, so let me just, if that, I'm not gonna save you from the tension of that, okay? If you find something in your heart churns with that, here's what I find quite often people who might find themselves in this category, perhaps it's because you grew up hearing the gospel and you have understood it and agreed with it. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus has died and risen. But what is often missing is what Jesus says in the gospel of Mark when he says, how is someone saved? Repent and believe. And it's that first part of repentance that sometimes doesn't come with that gospel message. It's not just believe these things to be true about God. In fact, the demons believe and shudder about the things that are true of Jesus. We're told that the application of saving faith into our hearts, the, the application of the redeeming work of Christ comes through repentance 
and belief. And repentance is to say, I need you to, I need you to apply your saving work to me, Jesus. Perhaps it's that you have never said to the Lord, would you grieve me over the sin that has made necessary your death? Repentance is a grieving and sorrow and therefore a turning of the, the, the person, the heart, away from the sin and towards Christ and a saying, now, if you found yourself this week saying, okay, so, so grieve me over my sin, then the, the next thing, he will do that. And as he does then, the right next thing for you is to say, now, I see it. I see the cost of it. I see the weight of it. I see it's how horrid it is. Now, I need you to save me from it. Take your work on the cross that paid the penalty for sin and apply it to me. Let it be for me. I beg you, I plead with you, let it be for me. And in that repentance and faith, he enters in and gives life and saves and redeems. So that first reason we see here in verse 21 is that there's a warning here. And we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge it. The scriptures come back to this warning so we have to state it. Let the Spirit work in that. Now, the second reason, everyone take a deep breath. I'm not gonna relieve you from the tension, but what I am gonna do is tell you there's another reason here, which is really not just warning, but celebration. It's the other side of the coin. Because do you remember what he said in verse 16 leading into this list? He said, those who walk by the Spirit, says, but walk by the Spirit, and what was the promise? and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So before he ever gives the list of the works of the flesh, he's already said, you have a weapon that is able to keep you from these works of the flesh that is so strong and so powerful and so freeing that you have not begun to comprehend. And so what I wanna remind you is that promise didn't disappear last week and go away. It's here as we examine the works of the flesh saying to you and to I, you don't have to be subject to these things anymore. Those who are in Christ, there's a freedom available to you. So if you find yourself stuck in sexual sin, stuck in sins of hatred, stuck in sins of idolatry, misplaced love or disordered love, I wanna say to you as we go through this list, it's meant to be a list that helps you celebrate the power of the spirit. It's meant to be both a warning and a celebration. So be warned that you not have a misplaced hope that you have not truly taken up the finished work of Christ, but also celebrate now, if you're in Christ, that there is power that will come and is coming into your life and is available to you so that you would walk in freedom from these things, okay? So let's then dig in and begin to look. Let's make our way through this list so as we look, so the, the big picture idea is the Spirit can give us freedom from all manner of sins. We must live in that freedom to enter God's kingdom. So there are four categories of sins. Almost everyone who commentates on this passage divides it into four categories, and they're good ones. I've kind of put some different verbiage to them. The first category is sexual sins. Now, the thing to recognize here, the first three terms apply to sexual sins, and I'll try to combine them, help you understand them, and draw some conclusions from them. But the thing I want you to see is 
I think it's in every one of them. If it's not, it's in almost every one of Paul's lists. And he does this in 1 Thessalonians. He does it in Ephesians. He does it in 1 Corinthians 6. Every time he makes a list of sins or, or works of the flesh, he begins with sexual sin. Why? And here's what's interesting. Do you know what often in most of these lists comes next? Idolatry. That's the first commandment in the 10 commandments. You shall have no other God before me. Right? So you would think it would make a lot of sense if you're gonna make a list of sins. Start with that one, worshiping false gods. He doesn't start there. He puts a second and he puts this first. I think there's a reason why. And the reason why, right, in intentionality is because one, there are very few things with the possibility uh, to teach us about God and bring joy into our lives than, than rightly ordered practice of sexuality. There's also very few things that can be as destructive. There are very few temptations that can take hold of a heart and a life. And look, I, I know some of you are under this right now. There are very few things that can take hold of a life. Satan takes the desire of the flesh and lies to us and gets his hooks in. And there are very few hooks that are harder to get out of the heart than the hooks of sexual sin. There may be none. It is, they go in deep. They play on a part of us that is central to our identity, very close to the core of who God has made us to be. They play on something that God has designed for great good and therefore gets wrecked for great bad. And so this is deep. 1 Corinthians 6, listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 6. Sometimes I hear believers sort of say, well, why does the church, if they, if they feel like their church emphasizes sexual sin too much or focuses on that, and they say, well, all sin separates us from God. And that's very true. There is no small sin, large sin that does not separate us from a holy and righteous God. All of it demands payment, 100%, absolutely. But there are sins that are more grievous than others in their effect upon us in their difficulty to, to manage and to navigate. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Let's say that again, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see that at least one of the things taking place, I mean, that, that could be a sermon, I could do a sermon unto itself right there, but let's just see that one of the things he's clearly saying is that sexual sin is particularly dangerous. It's particularly grievous. It's particularly hard to wrestle with and to overcome. Would you agree that that's what he's getting at? Okay, all right, nobody agrees, all right. I'm just kidding. I heard, I heard a vague. Oh. All right. Let's, what do we learn from the terms here, okay? So the first term is sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia, porneia. You can hear what comes from that, pornography, right? But porneia is the most broad of all terms in the scriptures for sexual sin. It's referring to any practice of sexuality that is not a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage practicing self-giving, mutual, tender intimacy. Any practice outside of that, outside of God's design, and I include the mutuality there under the covenant of marriage very intentionally, any practice of sexuality that is not a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage 
where 1 Corinthians 7 says, husbands, you don't have rights over your own bodies. Wives, you don't have rights over your own bodies. They are for one another. It's to be self-giving, mutual. Anything outside of that fits under the category of porneia, sexual immorality. And the reason he starts with that biggest category is because he's encompassing everything outside of God's design and saying, if you find these things present in yourself, then this is a work of the flesh. This is not the design or work of the spirit. Then he goes on to impurity. Now, he, he's gonna really fill out some things here that's really interesting. So impurity, when he's talking there, he's talking about this sort of Old Testament idea, even though he's under the new covenant. He's talking about this Old Testament idea of impurity. So under the Old Testament law, there were things that made people unclean. They couldn't go into the temple and participate in the worship of the people of the Lord. And so it, it might be a leper or it might be someone who was, uh, had been around a dead body. And so they were, un, they were ceremonially unclean. But the idea of being unclean is being cut off from the ability to enter the presence of God, right? Now, praise God that under the new covenant, we are made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ and therefore have access to God all the time. It's amazing, yes? Absolutely stunning. So there is no more ceremonial uncleanness, but what he is saying there and using that term is there's a fracture of intimacy, ability to access close fellowship with God that comes through sexual sin. He's saying, when he's talking about this term impurity, he's saying you are sacrificing intimacy with God through sexual sin because you're taking a lesser version of intimacy. You're taking a thing that was meant to teach you about intimacy with God through Christ and you're leveraging it in a way that lessens your ability to experience that intimacy by using it in a way that is outside of God's design. So in impurity, he's getting at really the root of what, it's, what sexuality is for. It's for teaching us something about the nature of God and his fellowship with us. And then he goes into this third term, sensuality. Now, I know I'm kind of moving through these quick, but we've got a, we've got a long list to cover, all right? So I want to make sure we cover it. So when he goes into sensuality, this is a really interesting term because it's actually a word for incontinence, the, the inability to control your bowels is what this word means. Now, that seems odd in a list here, but what he's getting at is this is a person who cannot control their urges, their bodily urges. Now, in a sexual sense, in this list, it's in a sexual sense, right? And so he's saying this is a person who has no self-control. No, they're given over to whatever their, their body tells them they follow. Now, in those three terms, let's combine them and learn, like what, is the, what do we learn from understanding these three terms and how Paul uses them? So we combine them and apply here if we can. And the thing I'm gonna try and do with each of these terms, which is probably not what you would, maybe what you would expect, I wanna apply them to our life together as a church, not just to you as an individual, not just to me as an individual. Think about what a church who is not putting to death these kinds of sins will look like. And I would argue, hypothesize, that a church where there is much sexual sin running through the body is probably a church that is going to experience anemic worship. Why? Because if sexual sin sacrifices intimacy with God and then we come into worship together, instead of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, which is what's supposed to happen in our worship. You know, if you come in here and you're low and you're in a, in a grieving spot, 
it's not that it's just supposed to be you and God. It's that the worship of the people around you is supposed to remind you of what's true and good. It's that as my brother next to me sings on a Sunday where I can barely bring myself to sing because my heart is aching and broken wide open by something going on in my life, the songs of the saints around me lift me up into the presence of God and remind me of what is true and even enable me to say, sing, soul, sing. You don't feel like singing, but sing. We, we worship together should be sweeter than worship alone. Is that fair? I hope you experience that when you come here. But I do believe that a church whose people give itself over to sexual sin rather than fighting against it and struggling is gonna be a church whose worship is anemic. Because if we're sacrificing intimacy with God, we can't expect to come together and then find that our, our worship is just filled with joy and richness and overflowing, yes? The other thing is this whole incontinence idea, sensuality. The other thing I would expect is in a church where sexual sin is present in the body in a significant way, is probably gonna give way to any manner of other sins because a lack of self-control in one area always gives way to other things. It's never, it never stays there. It never stays in that one category. Now, that's by way of application. Now, can we think about how we celebrate the power of the spirit? Because here's what I wanna tell you. And this is so key that you hear me, friends, you don't have to do today what you did yesterday. Do you see that the Spirit is present in you to deliver you? You are not condemned to keep repeating the same sexual sins. You're not. The Spirit is there and He will free you. Walk with Him. Take his hand and let him lead you. Can I just give you one bit of practical advice? The next time temptation seizes you and you're in front of that computer or you're in that back seat with that guy or that girl and temptation is rising, get up and get out. Run. If it's the spirit and walking by the spirit that overcomes the work of the flesh, who should we be talking to in the moment of our temptation? Talk to the spirit. Talk to him. Can I tell you the best thing you can do when that temptation is coming? By the way, get rid of the dumb phone. Don't take it with you. Get out of your house and go walk. It's really hard to sin sexually when you're walking through your neighborhood. Okay? I'm... Get out and walk. What does Psalm 19 say? The heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, as I get out into God's creation, who am I seeing? And I'm dialoguing with the Spirit while I witness the glory of God being declared in the skies, in the grass all around me. Get up and walk. Change your physical location when you are tempted. Do not stay in the same place. This happens far too often in these in conversations that I have. It's like, well, I'm tempted. Well, what did you do? I don't know. I just sat there. Don't do that. Let the Spirit lead you, and the Spirit's going to lead you to a new physical location. Go somewhere else. Pray. Talk to the Spirit. Let Him lead you into freedom. Set your mind on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about such things. There is freedom, there is freedom, there is freedom. It's not Pollyanna-ish to tell you that as if, well, Trent, you don't know how hard it is. I do know how hard it is. And this word is true. 
It's not my opinion. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's true. Now, join the Spirit. Take his hand. It is hard, but there is freedom. I'm really behind. All right, here we go. Sins of misplaced and disorder. Some Sundays just need a little more, all right? Sins of misplaced and disordered love, the next two terms, all right? Now, I could categorize this idolatry, but I just think that's a very church word that sometimes just slips right past us, so I wanna make sure we understand the heart of what Paul is getting at, because look at the next two terms. After sensuality, go back to the text, get your eyes on it. Verse 20, the next two terms are idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery is an interesting one, all right? Now, idolatry is broadly giving our heart's affection to something more than we give it to God. Let's just be really simple about it. Giving our heart to something more than we give it to God, the affection of our heart. So I say misplaced and disordered because it could look like loving something that we shouldn't love, misplaced love. It could look like loving something more than we love God. That's disordered love, right? Could be either of those things. Either one is idolatry. And so what Paul is getting at is this is a work of the flesh. Anything that produces love for something more than God or love for something that God does not approve of or love is idolatry. That's what he's getting at there. Then the next one, sorcery, is this term that refers to the practice in a lot of these pagan religions during Paul's day, there would be drug use involved in the cult worship practices. And so when he talks about sorcery, he's not just talking about like witchcraft. He's saying, putting yourself under the influence of a substance that controls you more than God controls you. So instead of seeking to be controlled by God, I'm now putting myself under the control of a, of a thing, of a substance, in order, whether it's escapism or whether it's an addiction, whatever it may be. In his day, he has a particularly religious uh, undertone to what he means. But what he's getting at then is that giving yourself over, giving of control over to something other than God. Now, let me say in terms of just giving an illustration of this idea of rightly ordered, like rightly ordered love. I say to my kids all the time, I love your mom first, then I love y'all. You might think, wait, what? I would die for my kids. I'd stand in front of a train for my kids. There is nothing I would not do for my kids. The kind of love I feel for them is indescribable but my wife comes first. Why? Because I have a covenant one flesh union with my wife. I do not have that with my kids. My job is to launch and release my kids into hopefully new families, Lord willing, where they will become one flesh with someone else and that family will come before our family of origin. Some of you need to hear that. She and I, in it together, until we die. That's it. And my kids can't play us off against one another. And they try to do the, but my, no, don't, don't try and separate us. It won't work. Right? And here's the thing. I haven't lessened my love for my kids by saying to them, she comes first. I haven't lessened a bit. I've enhanced it because I've created a place of safety and security for my kids. A trust that mom and dad are one. Mom and dad are together. 
indissolvable. That's the environment we're in. And as they live in that, they feel safety, security, and they know how deeply loved they are. But I am one flesh with her, and they are the product of that one flesh union. Praise God. But rightly ordered love creates security, safety, joy, and peace. Now let's apply that to our church life together. A church whose people are given over to misplaced and disordered love, I think, will probably be weak in evangelism because we're more worried about loving other things than we are about loving him. And if we love other things more than we love him, we're less concerned about telling other people about him. So if we find weakness in evangelism in ourselves, might we need to ask the question, are we a church given over to misplaced or disordered love? Like that which is listed here. Now again, let's celebrate because the spirit is able to renew to reveal new and renewed truth to us on a daily basis. This is the power of the Spirit to help us overcome this work of the flesh. Do you see that as you walk by the Spirit with him, one of the things he is able to do and does do is reveal to you things about God that cause you to love him more on a daily basis. It may be things that you never saw before. Quite often it's things you knew, but you're renewed in. It happened this morning to me. I'm reading through Exodus in my quiet times. I'm reading uh, chronologically through the Bible this year, right? And as I'm reading through, I'm in Exodus 17, and there's this passage where Moses is holding his arms up as his people battle the Amalekites. And I'm thinking, and I just found myself talking to God and going, what, what, why did you care whether his arms are up or down? I mean, what's the point of that? And as I'm talking with God and reflecting on that, I realized that the people had been murmuring and complaining against Moses and God was showing them that he was the man that he had chosen to lead them so that he was giving Moses what he needed in order to be able to do the job to which he had called them. And therefore he was showing them when Moses' arms are up, you win battles. When his arms are down, you don't win battles. It's not Moses, it's not his arms, it's not hocus pocus. It's God doing a work for the people of Israel to show them that Moses is the man that he's called to lead. Well, guess what? As your pastor, that was pretty encouraging to me. I think God gives us what we need to walk in the calling to lead the people that he calls us to lead. He'll give us everything we need. And, and guess what happened? My heart treasured God more. It's not something I didn't know before, but it was a renewed truth that I received this morning just by meditating upon the scriptures. And it just made my heart flame up with love for God again. And as my heart flames up with love for God, guess what? My love gets rightly ordered and is it misplaced? The Spirit's able to do that. He is doing it all the time. The third category that we see here is our longest one. It's sins of hate. Now, we're not gonna spend an incredibly long time on it, but it's eight terms. So pay attention to that. Eight terms for sins of hate. The first one in the list is enmity. And it really is the broadest term and then all the other ones kind of describe it because enmity just simply means hate. And so what I want you to see here is all the sins that come underneath this, there's this contentiousness, this critical spirit, this fractiousness. Don't excuse those where you see them in your life as sort of innocent little things. Oh, I gossip a little bit or I kind of, you know, talked about that person or I did this thing or I boiled over in anger a little bit. Don't dismiss them as small things. They are acts of hate. So Paul is saying when he calls them all enmity, and everything that flows out of it. So, here's the terms we see. Strife. This is a person who's contentious. They're constantly critical. They're always looking for how you're wrong, to correct, and they're always looking for something with which to disagree. They just seem like no matter what you say, 
They're always gonna tell you some correction or adjustment that you need to make. Then we see jealousy and envy. These are parallel terms. It's a person who wants what someone else has and isn't content with what God has given them. Timothy George, who's a scholar, comments on this passage and he says it this way. I really love the way he put it. Jealousy and envy, he says, are ingratitude to God, a failure failure to accept one's life as a gift from God, means the circumstances of my life. To envy what someone else has is to fling one's own gifts before God in unthankful rebellion and spite. It was really telling. Convicted me this week. Years ago in ministry, I had a a boss who had us take uh, this strengths finder assessment. Anybody ever done that for work? Strengths finder, yeah. So the idea is, you know, you operate in your strengths more than trying to round out your weaknesses and you'll be more effective. And it's a helpful tool. And as we did it, I remember there's like 30 something, maybe even more strengths. And I remember you, you see the list and you immediately kind of pick out the ones you want, right? Yeah, I'd love to be this, I'd love to be that. And I got five of the ones I would have never wanted. I took the test. So I mean, well, the test is wrong. But you know, for like two years after that, I just remember being so envious of people on my team who were shown to have the gifts that I wanted. And it was sin. Because what was I saying to God? I don't want to be who you made me. I don't want the gifts that you gave me. I want the ones you gave somebody else. What is that? It's exactly what he's talking about here. Jealousy and envy. It's rebellion against God. Fits of anger is in this list, which is someone who's prone to boil over with anger. Could be physical, but often it's verbal. And then interestingly, he has this three terms that are very close to one another. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Now, each one of those is someone who's prone to to divide, to fracture, but for different reasons. So rivalries is relational fracture that's caused by selfish ambition. It's like a political term. The idea is you're pursuing your own advancement and you're willing to kind of push others aside as a result. Selfish ambition, fracture caused by selfish ambition. Dissensions is division, fracture that happens because you're undermining spiritual leaders. And then the last one speaks to the leader. So if that one speaks to the people, then the last one speaks to the leaders. Because divisions, that term divisions, is the fracture that happens in a, in a church, in a body, because the truth isn't taught. It's the fracture that comes from teaching false things. And that naturally fractures people because then people who love the truth and care about the truth and cling to it have to divide, yes? And it misleads and it divides. So I love that Paul's kind of equal-handed there and, and there's these different reasons that we might be someone that causes fracture. But where we see them, they are dangerous. Now let's apply that here to our church life. A church where these sins prevail will be a place I think, I mean, of a lot, a lot of division, right? Gossip, probably. But I think more so, here's what I see. It would be a church where there's very little confession of sin because there's very little grace given when sin is confessed. Imagine being a part of a body that is so fractious, so contentious all the time, kind of looking for faults always, which is what this, these things kind of amount to, where there's very little relational trust because that's fracturing all the time. If that's true, this key element of spiritual maturity where we confess our sins to one another 
and we receive grace and we're pointed to truth and we're reminded of the power of the grace of God, that won't be present and that will hinder the maturity of the whole body. Now, let's also remember to celebrate because the Spirit is able to give you an overwhelming love for one another and you should ask him for it. The Spirit, I don't just mean like the church generally, I mean you should pray, if this is your church home, you should pray, give me an overwhelming love for the people of my church, of West Shore. Give me an overwhelming, the kind of love that bears one another's burdens, the kind of love that bears with others in sin. Give me a love for those who are easy for me to love and give me a love for those who are less easy for me to love. But we should be praying, you should be praying, I am praying all the time, give me an overwhelming love for my people. Because I don't wanna be fractious I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to gossip. I want to be in a church where the people of God love each other deeply and profoundly. The last category is sins of indulgence. Sins of indulgence. So you see them here. And it's probably there because at the beginning we're talking about sexual desires and now we come because there's other desires we all have that can lead us astray as well. And they're the works of the flesh. And so he lists drunkenness and orgies. Now, the first is exactly what it sounds like. Drunkenness is giving, again, control of ourselves to a substance, particularly as alcohol in mind. And he's saying, this is not the way a believer is supposed to be, given over to these substances, given, given over to, to drunkenness. But then orgies isn't what it sounds like. It, the, there's the translation that a lot of uh, older English versions will use is carousing. And the idea is just wild partying. So it sounds sexual in nature when you say orgies, and there may be that kind of in play often with this, but the term itself just means wild partying. So he's saying the works of the flesh are drunkenness and wild partying, like giving yourself over to just sort of uninhibited uh, party spirit. Now, just imagine that a church where these sins are prevailing, not being fought, is one where leaders will struggle to move their people, I think, into service and into generosity. So I'm always asking myself, like, do I see in my people as they're moving towards maturity, do I see that they want to use their gifts to serve others? Like, they know their gifts and they wanna use them and they're, they're just like, where can I serve? How can I use the gifts that I've been given by God? Because I imagine if there's a given over to drunkenness, a following of the, the works of the flesh in this way, there's just not gonna be any time where we're going to say the priority is to serve, not party, not satisfy the things I want to do, right? The priority is not drunken stupor. The priority is service and self-sacrifice. And that service comes with generosity as well. So we always ask, where's our... Where's our generosity with our finances? Where's our generosity with our time? And I just wanna encourage you again, part of joining the work of the Spirit, we saw this a couple weeks ago, is serve. Use your gifts. Whatever God's given you, put it to use and you will find the Spirit moving through you powerfully. You'll gain more taste for the things of the Spirit and less taste for the things of the world. So practical. Take hold of it. So we get to celebrate that the Spirit quickens our minds and hearts towards God in a way that's better than any experience drugs or alcohol can offer. Listen to Ephesians 5.18, and then we're gonna come to the communion table. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit. So he's there very clearly saying these two things are antithetical. To be drunk on wine is antithetical to, the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. But it's also very telling that he uses those ideas together because he's not just saying, hey, the Spirit is opposed to this kind of behavior. Therefore, you need to do this, be filled with the Spirit, rather than get drunk on wine. He's also pointing out that instead of giving control of ourselves over to a substance, we are to give control of ourselves over to the Spirit. And there's an experience of that controlling work of the Spirit that is similar enough. I don't mean that it, that it makes us inebriated. We shouldn't have that image in our mind. But it certainly is a controlling aspect that the Spirit can control us, take hold of our mind, take hold of our hearts, lead us forward and cause us to do things we wouldn't normally do. There's enough parallel there that that's why I believe he chooses to use those two things right there together in the text and say, don't do this. Don't get drunk this way. Come and be filled this way. Come and be controlled this way. So that's also a statement that the Spirit's able to do that. The Spirit is able to free you, release you, from the control of those substances. Now, friends, everything I said is hard and heavy work. Would we agree? None of this is light. And part of God's generosity to us is that he puts these things in his word so that we have to face them squarely. And as we face them, I, my hope has been that you would hear from the tone in my voice, from the look on my face, from the words that I speak, that you would, one, hear the word of God come forth. That's always what matters. But that you would hear it brought forth in a way that communicates the kindness of the Lord, which leads us to repentance and his love for you. As you wrestle with these things, if you're not wrestling with them and you know I'm not, please don't hear me say, go away. Please hear me say, come further in. Let's get busy. Let's walk in freedom. That freedom is there for you. It's yours, available to you in Christ through the power of the Spirit. All right, servers, why don't you come down? We're gonna come to the Lord's table now, church family, and what a perfect Sunday to do this as we reflect on this because as we come to the table, what are we partaking of? We're coming to partake of elements that are meant to remind us of the work of Christ that was done to bring the freedom of the Spirit to us, to make payment for sin, as we hold these elements in our hand, church family, please remember that we are invited, instructed by God's word to say to the, to the Lord, I'm holding my life before you. Show me what is unpleasing to you. Show me where I need redirecting, correcting conviction, not to partake of them lightly. So let's do that together today, even as we reflect upon the spirit who comes through then this finished work and empowers us. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus, haven't placed your faith in him, just let these elements pass by. We say this every time, but we do it because it's important. We don't want you to partake of elements and proclaim a faith that you don't have. We want you to be honest in your heart and honest, intellectually honest, not, not trying to, we don't ever want anyone to put on a show around here to pretend you are somewhere that you're not. And so we'll invite you to let these elements pass even while we encourage you, consider, we believe God is drawing you one step closer to himself each time. We would love for today to be the day that you yield yourself to him. So service, let's come and take the Lord's Supper together.